Before we get into this episode, we have a quick favor to ask you. If you love our show, please scroll down to the review section of your favorite podcast platform and leave us a five-star rating. If you have a few more seconds, please also leave us a review telling us what you like most about our show. We read every single one of these and we appreciate them so much. This will also help us grow and get into the ears of those who love true crime and food as much as you do. Thanks and enjoy the episode. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Welcome to Dietetics After Dark, your source for food-related crime, scandal, and fraud. Hi, Becca. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, are you ready for Christmas? I am. I'm so ready for Christmas. I can't. I still can't believe it's the end of 2020, but I'm happy mm-hmm. about it. Yeah, me too. And the next time, well, first of all, when this episode comes out, it will be 2021, mm-hmm. which is wild. And the next time we record will be 2021. It's true. I'm really looking forward to 2021 and all it has in store. <laughs> Me too. I'm feeling good vibes for 2021. Better vibes in 2020 for sure. <laughs> can they get any worse? I don't even want to, I don't want to know if they can get any worse. No, me neither. As far as I'm concerned, 2021 is going to be the best year ever. <laughs> me too. <laughs> All right. What did I ask you to research today? Okay. So this was a big topic, uh, but essentially mm-hmm. carbohydrates, what yeah. they are, the general gist, as well as Um, a little bit of information on low-carb diets and the science behind them. Yeah, we really don't do small topics. 
No, we don't, which is why these episodes are all so long. (laughs) The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. If you're interested in medical nutrition therapy or personalized nutrition advice, please talk to a registered dietitian in your area. All the citations and relevant links for anything mentioned in this episode will be in our show notes. This podcast may contain coarse language and mature subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. This is an independently produced podcast. If you could rate, review, and subscribe, that would really help us out, and we will be forever grateful. So last week, we talked a little bit about carbohydrates and their role in the body, and today I'm going to expand a bit more on that. So carbohydrates are molecules that consist of carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen in different proportions. They're classified based on their structure, and their main classifications are monosaccharides, disaccharides, oligosaccharides, and polysaccharides. These are also divided into more commonly known categories, which are simple and complex carbohydrates. The difference between these two categories are based on their structure, how quickly they're digested, and how quickly they're absorbed into the system. So simple carbohydrates are often called simple sugars and are made up of mono and disaccharides. Monosaccharides, as you were mentioning last episode, Sarah, consist of glucose, fructose, and galactose, and these are the most basic simple sugars. And then we have disaccharides, which are essentially made up of two monosaccharides, and they include sucrose, so table sugar, maltose, and lactose. Our friend table sugar. Our good friend table sugar. (laughs) Uh, And then we have complex carbohydrates, on the other hand, which are polysaccharides, meaning they consist of even more saccharides and take even longer to digest. They're often known as starch or dietary fiber, and some examples include whole grains, fiber-rich fruit, and veggies. Nice. This is like a full nutrition class. I figured I would break it down, (laughs) just in case you've forgotten. Oh, this is perfect. (laughs) So with the exception of insoluble fiber, some sugar alcohols and monosaccharides, which includes glucose, Most of the other carbohydrates are broken down to get the glucose and turn into energy through a process called glycolysis. Yes. (laughs) So as you might know, one gram of carbohydrates equates to four kilocalories of energy. And one kilocalorie is the amount of energy in the form of heat that is needed to raise the temperature of a kilogram of water by one degree Celsius. Sorry, that was a mouthful. (laughs) It's just such an interesting way to think about calories because I think when people think about them in food and they don't really understand what a calorie is, calories can sound kind of mystifying and, you know, people count them. What do they really mean? But it's interesting to break it down to that fundamental definition. Absolutely. The amount of heat required to raise one gram of water by one degree Celsius, right? Kilogram of water. Kilogram. Yeah. Dang it. (laughs) So close. Oh, yeah, because it's kilocalorie. I'll give you a C plus for that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so (laughs) one of my favorite facts about carbohydrates is that they actually start to break down in your mouth. Oh, yeah. So there's an enzyme called... Yeah, amylase. And it's excreted (laughs) by your salivary glands, and it starts to break up the starch as soon as you put that carb or that food in your mouth. Okay, so I'm just going to take a little pivot here because you've also likely heard about refined carbohydrates which are simply carbs that have been stripped of one or more of their components and are no longer considered whole. So whole grain Mm -hmm. consists of the bran, germ, and endosperm of the plant. So refined grain is stripped of one or more of these things. With that, they're often stripped of their fiber and some of their nutrients as well. 
The starch, however, is still left behind, which gets absorbed much more quickly in the body without the slowing digestive effects of fiber. Refined carbohydrates can sometimes be referred to as processed carbohydrates. However, it is good to keep in mind that almost all of the foods that we eat are processed to some degree. So whether it be through cooking, baking, freezing, and even cutting is technically considered a processing method. The term processed Mm -hmm. has received a bad rep, which in reality, people are usually referring to ultra-processed foods when they refer to refined or processed products. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. Ultra-processed foods have undergone multiple processing methods to manipulate the food product. So for example, the process to make chips is as follows. Potatoes are picked, stored in temperature-controlled environments, washed, peeled, sliced, washed again, fried, salted, or flavored, and then packaged. So unless you are eating fruit and vegetables directly from their source, so from the ground, your carbohydrates and food for that matter have been processed at some capacity. Interesting. I've heard ultra-processed foods be described as processes that you just can't replicate at home. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a good... Uh, a good definition. Kind of a simple way to think of it. Yeah, I like that. For sure. And I think you like you could still technically make chips at home. It's just that the like the the methods would take a lot more equipment and stuff like that. Totally. And it just I just don't know if I could make a perfect Miss Vicky's chip at home. Oh, definitely you know? not. That would be the end of me. <laughs> yeah. Even with like the perfect mandolin and the right amount of salt and like a deep fryer, I just don't know if I could replicate like the exact yeah, no, I agree with you there. I wish I could. Chips are amazing. As chips are amazing. <laughs> Anyways, carbohydrates are fundamental to human life. As I'm sure you know, Sarah, we wouldn't be able to yeah. live without carbs. And if you cut carbs from your diet, your body may experience what's called hypoglycemia, which is low blood sugar. So mild symptoms of hypoglycemia include the shakes, hunger, headaches, confusion, and dizziness, and more severe symptoms include seizures or even unconsciousness. But despite how important carbohydrates are, diet culture has been demonizing them for centuries. So one of the first instances of implementing a low-carb diet was in the 1700s when a Scottish military surgeon placed individuals with what is now known as type 2 diabetes on a meat diet, only to find that it helped improve their condition. A low-carb diet was a common treatment for diabetes in the 1800s. But make note, with type 2 diabetes, you want to manage your blood sugar levels rather than eliminate carbohydrates entirely. So today, the nutrition therapy for diabetes is a little bit more complex than simply cutting carbs, but it's way more effective. Another historical instance of low-carb diet was famously uncovered in 1862 when William Banting, a notable English undertaker, was so overweight he couldn't tie his own shoes and went to his doctor, Dr. William Harvey, because he was having trouble hearing. The doctor said, your problem isn't deafness, your fat is pressing on your inner ear. And so Dr. Harvey put him on a low-carb diet that included no beer, no sugar in your tea or coffee, daily meat, no potatoes, and the fruit of any pudding so long as he didn't touch the pastry. And at dinner, he was allowed to have two to three glasses of quality sherry, claret, or Madeira, and a nightcap, if required, of whiskey, gin, or brandy, which sounds... Sounds like, like an okay yeah, diet. Yeah, sounds like quite the diet. <laughs> it also doesn't sound necessary. Like, it is, I guess, lower carb maybe than most of the diets at the time, but like, if you're having 
the fruit of a dessert, like the in, the filling of a pie, mm-hmm. which is sugar and fruit, that would be a very rich source of carbohydrates. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I love, love, love that sherry and like wine was necessary on this diet. Two to three glasses. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know. It's quite a bit. It is. Doesn't say what size glasses either. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So this diet was so successful that Banting wrote a letter on corpulence addressed to the public where he describes his diet in detail, his 100 pound weight loss, and if you can believe it, how his hearing improved. I can't honestly, when you first said that, I was like, there's no way, there's no way it was actually his own fat pressing on his ears in a way that was making him have hearing difficulty. Is that possible? I guess it is. According to this from the 1800s. Yeah. Wow. The low carb diet made another notable appearance in the 1920s when it was found that consuming fewer carbs could help patients with epilepsy by reducing their frequency and severity of seizures. Mm. Mm-hmm. There's even a reference in the New Testament where Jesus cures a child with epilepsy through prayer and fasting. Stop. Which I thought was very interesting. That is yes. interesting. And I read it. It's Matthew 17, 14 to 21. Very Ah. interesting stuff. Well, the Mm -hmm. keto diet does have a religious following. (laughs) (laughs) This is true. (laughs) So this diet is what we know as the ketogenic diet today. The objective of the diet, whether used as treatment for epilepsy or used by individuals hoping to lose weight, is to enter the metabolic state of ketosis. And ketosis occurs when carb intake is very low and the body which is lacking its preferred form of energy, aka glucose, is forced to burn fat for fuel instead, which creates ketone bodies that are used for energy. The logic behind this diet as a treatment for epilepsy is still somewhat unknown, but many hypotheses have been tried to explain why this works. And my favorite hypothesis is that an increase in ketone bodies reduces neural excitability and therefore reduces both the frequency and the severity of seizures. Huh. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, so that's one of the many. I think there was like a bunch of hypotheses that I was going over, but Hmm. that one kind of made the most sense to me where those ketone bodies just kind of reduce the excitability in the brain. Interesting. Okay, that's cool. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, So this diet is still used as treatment for epilepsy to this day. However, it is usually only used with children when medication is not effective. And this is mainly because it's it's difficult for children to stick to a low-carb diet. Okay. So why might this type of diet be effective for weight loss? Other than the fact that it forces the body to burn fat as fuel, studies show that those on a low-carb diet are typically ingesting the same amount of calories as calorie-restricted diets, and that the dietary protein helps the dieter feel satisfied and full. Also, protein has a greater thermogenic effect than carbohydrates simply because high-protein foods are less efficient, so they're harder to break down than carbohydrates. While there's very little consistency on what defines a low-carb or ketogenic diet. It typically includes limiting carbohydrates to 5 to 15% of all energy consumed versus the recommended 45 to 65% by the dietary guidelines for Americans, and it's similar for Canadians as well. Hmm. Having less than 50 grams of carbs per day will cause glycogen depletion, and glycogen is a stored form of glucose, and ketone production from the breakdown of fat. 
A big part of rapid weight loss that occurs at the beginning of carbohydrate restriction is attributable to the loss of glycogen and water. Since every gram of stored glycogen has approximately three to four grams of water associated to it. So the ketogenic dieter will want to be careful though, because if the fat content in your body is not high enough, your body may begin metabolizing proteins. And Mm. what does protein make up? Our muscles. Muscles, bones, (laughs) skin, nails. So you definitely want to make sure that you have enough protein. Yeah. And there are some studies that suggest that the ketogenic diet may affect skeletal muscle hypertrophy. Other research has expressed concerns regarding kidney function when it comes to a low-carb, high-protein diet. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So some pretty contradictory stuff out there. Yeah, lots of contradictory stuff, and that will only continue when I tell my part of the story. <laughs> I believe it. So thank you for the the lesson. That was really, really informative. A huge um, refresher <laughs> for a lot of our <laughs> courses. I felt like I just listened to a really like calming Khan Academy video. Oh, yeah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> a nice little science lesson. <laughs> well, I hope you found it informative. <laughs> I, I know that you probably knew most of that stuff already, but... Well, totally, but it's like to set the stage for this story, it's important to have that base. I'm so excited to hear what you have to share. Yeah. So excited. Um, and all of this builds... I feel like our episodes, we didn't actually plan this, but our episodes are building off each other so nicely. Like this goes so nicely off of the sucrose episode. Mm-hmm. It really does. Okay. So thank you so much for all your hard research. You did a great job. <laughs> You're welcome. Morning. Cop of murder. Ever wonder what terrible thing happened on this day in true crime history? My name is Karina Bemisterfer, writer and host of Morning Cup of Murder, your daily true crime podcast that dives into what murder took place on today's date in history. With over 500 episodes about serial killers, murderers, cults, and cold cases, there is always something new for you to enjoy. Morning Cup of Murder is the perfect addition to your morning routine. So if you like your coffee hot but your bones chilled, start your day with a morning cup of murder. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else you listen, and come say hi on social media at Morning Cup of Murder. Oh, and remember, stay safe. So I'm sure, Becca, as a child of the 90s, you must remember the Atkins diet. Mm -hmm. Did you ever know anyone who was on it? No, I I didn't. I feel like the Atkins diet, it was bigger in the 90s, right? Like 80s, 90s? I think so. Yeah. So I don't personally remember anyone that I know that was on it just because Mm -hmm. I was a child in the nineties. Yeah. Um, But I do remember hearing a lot about it and just like hearing cultural references and shows and stuff like that about it. Totally. Yeah. I feel like it was almost, it was like omnipresent, even though no one in my life as a kid at that, as far as I know was on the Atkins diet or at least Mm -hmm. formally. Um, But the idea that carbohydrates were Cutting out carbohydrates was the way to lose weight was present, I think, Mm -hmm. at least in my childhood. And I do remember specifically when I was older, I want to say like 18, so 2008, revealing my age, um, (laughs) cut that, just kidding. Maybe I'll leave it in. Um, I had a boss. I worked retail. I had a boss who would always go on the Atkins diet and she would just bring packs of hot dogs, I'm not kidding, and microwave them in the back. 
And like that was the Atkins diet. And that was the first time I'd ever seen someone doing the Atkins diet. And I was like, that can't, that cannot be healthy. Just eating hot dogs Just straight up plain hot dogs. Plain weenies, no bun. Plain weenies, no bun. And if I remember (laughs) correctly, there was no toppings. Like it was just the hot dog. And I found that really off-putting at the time. That was, so that's my impre- that was my firsthand experience with the Atkins diet, just seeing someone else just eat hot dogs and being like, I don't know about that. Okay. That is bizarre. So um, if you haven't figured it out yet, we're going to be talking about the Atkins diet today <laughs> and the controversy that surrounded it. So what exactly is the Atkins diet? Well, Becca set us up nicely for this explanation, but the Atkins diet is a low-carb fad diet. And... You've probably heard, uh, unless you live under a nutritional rock, you've probably heard about the keto diet, which is the ketogenic diet that Becca was just talking about to treat pediatric epilepsy. But it's also all over the media nowadays as a weight loss diet. So Atkins is to the 70s and 80s and 90s what keto is to fad dieters today. So it's a diet that emphasizes animal-based products and can result in rapid weight loss. It has a very strong following, and it also has a fair amount of controversy. So today I'm going to focus solely on the Atkins diet, and I want to start off with a little bit of background information. So there are different phases of the Atkins diet based on how much weight you intend to lose, your life stage, and how restrictive you want the diet to be. All of the different phases of the Atkins diet are focused on the same principle, which is restricting your carbohydrates by tracking your net carb consumption. So that would be your total grams of carbohydrates minus total grams of fiber and total grams of sugar alcohol, because we don't actually digest and absorb the carbohydrates from those carbohydrates. (laughs) (laughs) That makes sense, right? Yes. Perfect. I know what you mean. (laughs) And the focus of the Atkins diet is on eating protein, fat, and some vegetables, um, but mostly animal-based products. The Atkins diet, actually, I didn't make a note of this, but I thought it was interesting. There is actually an eco-Atkins diet for vegans and vegetarians. Oh, what does that consist of? So the vegetarian one will have eggs and cheese and tofu and things like that. And then the vegan version is mostly like soy-based products Hmm. and vegetables, of course, low-carb vegetables. Anyways, so yeah, the Atkins diet skyrocketed to popularity through the 70s, 80s, and 90s. It promised weight loss without hunger, which was really appealing. You could enjoy foods that were high in protein and fat pretty much as much as you wanted as long as you limited carbohydrates. Mm -hmm. Despite its popularity and success, there is actually no strong evidence that the Atkins diet can help dieters achieve sustainable weight loss. And there are studies that suggest it may increase the risk of heart disease and possibly atrial fibrillation, which is an irregular heartbeat. However, there are also plenty of studies that suggest quite the opposite, that they can be uh, both very effective for weight loss and improving cardiovascular markers of cardiovascular disease. So at present, there is not enough evidence to suggest that low-carb diets have a significant advantage in terms of weight loss over other types of diets. So really what I'm saying here is that like it's a viable option that doesn't seem to be dangerous, but it's not a cure-all. It's not a miracle diet. It's not anything like that. Right. It's also important to note, and I want to make this note right off the top, that restrictive fad diets can also impact the way that dieters view food and their relationship with food. So it can kind of give them a warped sense of what is, quote unquote, good food or, quote unquote, bad food. And I am of the opinion, I think you might be on the same page, that 
the Atkins diet really made people scared of carbs. It Mm -hmm. kind of villainized carbs. People thought they were unhealthy to the point where things like bread, pizza, pasta became like, quote unquote, bad foods and maybe caused people stress or guilt about eating them. And that is not okay because carbohydrates are not bad. As Becca just taught us all about, there's a lot of good qualities. It's our preferred form of energy, our most easily utilized form of energy. So like I said, the Atkins diet was a very popular diet with the public from the start, but it always had its opponents. And it became even more controversial after the tragic demise of its creator, Dr. Robert Atkins. I actually don't know anything about this. I'm excited. It's interesting. (laughs) So the story surprised me. That's all I'll say. Okay. Like how I felt about the story surprised me. Okay. That's a little teaser. No, surprised me. So Dr. Robert Atkins was born in 1930 in Ohio. And as a young person, he actually thought about being a comedian. He worked on a local radio show and he worked as a server and entertainer at various resorts. He eventually settled on medicine and specialized in cardiology and opened up his private practice in New York. Apparently, the practice struggled at first and Atkins began to put on some weight himself. And this led him to research nutrition. And he began to pursue a low carbohydrate diet based on the research of some of his predecessors that you told us about. So like William Banting and his letter of corpulence, which I had to Google. (laughs) It means a state of obesity. Corpulence. Corpulence. I actually didn't know that. I probably should have Googled that. But that's not a very flattering word. Yeah, it's, yeah. Too close to corpse. It's like corpse, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So decades, decades after the letter of corpulence and even decades after the ketogenic diet was invented, we find ourselves just after World War II at an American chemical firm called DuPont, where there are concerns that the executives are gaining too much weight and becoming obese. I would love to hear the conversation in that boardroom. (laughs) I was like... We're concerned about Todd. Um, they it's hired. Terrible. I know it's awful. They hired Dr. Alfred Pennington to help him out because the calorie restrictive diets that they were trying just weren't working. And I made a note that they should have hired a dietitian. <laughs> Probably, like but most and then people. I was like, did dietitians exist in the 1950s? In World War World War II? Yeah, they must have early dietitians. Anyways, I'm sure they did. We should fact check that. Future editing, Becca here. Sarah Tyson Rohrer, who was born in 1849, is deemed to be America's first dietitian. There was no formal dietetic education at this time, but her dedication to teaching and her advocacy work for what was then considered a domestic science is why she has been given the title. In Canada, the first established advocacy group, called the Canadian Dietetic Association, was founded in 1935, but the first recorded dietitian being appointed to a hospital staff was in 1908, when the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto hired one on. So Dr. Pennington, he comes, he goes to DuPont, he comes to the conclusion that carbs are the problem here, and they end up going on a low-carbohydrate diet, and they all lose weight, about 22 pounds each. Uh, so it seemed like a great success. I would love to see a follow-up, but I couldn't find a study published, so. Nobody followed up on this. Unlikely. They just took it as fact and ran with They're it. like, this is it. Huh. Or, well, not everybody, but, but Dr. Atkins, I think, re- he referred to this research and thought that it was his best uh, course of action. So this inspired Dr. Atkins to create and share his own low-carb diet, the Atkins Diet. And in 1972, he published his first book, The Dr. Atkins Diet Revolution. And over the next three decades, the Atkins Diet became immensely popular. Now we're going to fast forward to 2003. 
So 31 years have passed. Dr. Atkins has had great financial success, multiple other published books, and many different iterations of the Atkins diet uh, with over 30 million readers and great popularity with the general public. Dr. Robert Atkins falls on a sidewalk in front of his Atkins Center for Complementary Medicine, and he hit his head. Mm. He was admitted to the hospital and remained in a coma for nine days before passing away on April 17, 2003. The cause of death was determined by the New York Medical Examiner to be, quote, blunt injury of the head with epidural hematoma, end quote. And from what I read, this is not an uncommon occurrence when there's a head trauma. So there's nothing uh, super noteworthy about the epidural hematoma following the head trauma. It's so sad. I'm yeah. sorry, how old was he at this point? 73. 73. Yeah. So now Atkins had been a controversial figure throughout his life, and he did follow his own diet advice for his entire life since, um, you know, the 19th. 60s or whenever he decided to pursue this. So he was not a stranger to having his personal health scrutinized by critics. But what happened after his death could be characterized as a smear campaign. Mm. And many of his advocates, including other doctors and his beloved wife, Veronica Atkins, rushed to his defense. So according to the New York Times, the mayor of New York at the time, his name was Michael Bloomberg, was overheard expressing his skepticism about the circumstances of Dr. Atkins' death. Basically saying, and I'm paraphrasing, that it wasn't a fall that killed Dr. Atkins and that he was fat. What? Yeah. And then allegedly Mayor Bloomberg went on to describe a fundraiser that he'd attended at the Atkins home. And he said that he found the food so inedible that he took one appetizer and had to spit it into his napkin. Why? Like, Why was he saying this? Yeah. So apparently it was at a pasta dinner, like a fundraising pasta dinner where Bloomberg was talking Oh. So it's like a carb-heavy dinner. But that part is hearsay. That part was not reported by the New York Times. Okay. Still, why speak Why speak ill of somebody who's recently passed away? Why? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I know. And that's my next question. <laughs> <laughs> so more information came to light nearly a year after Dr. Atkins passed away when the Wall Street Journal published information from his personal medical report. Oh. The report had been sent to the Wall Street Journal by the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Let's pause here. Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. First thoughts based on the name. I mean, it sounds like it's quite literally a group of physicians that are going after responsible medicine. Like that's yeah. what they their end goal is, is maybe research and practices totally. that are responsible. Yeah, seems ethical. It seems noble. It seems, you know, based on the name, who wouldn't want to support physicians for responsible medicine? Okay, so it's actually a group that advocates for a plant-based diet and had been long critical of the Atkins approach. And they never, ever should have had access to Atkins' personal medical report. So, Sorry, how did they... Do you mention how they got access? Sorry if I'm interrupting you. (laughs) It's okay. So, yes, the in... In New York, the only person or people who can have access to the medical report are the treating physician or the next of kin. And so what it looks like what happened is that the city medical examiner's office made a mistake when they gave out the report. So the office received a request for Dr. Atkins' medical report. You can make a request. Like anyone can, I guess. 
from Dr. Richard Fleming, who's a doctor at the Fleming Heart and Health Institute. And one of the records staff mailed it out, like responded to the request and gave it to him. So it, it wasn't even necessarily something super shady. He made the request. He got the report. But that shouldn't have happened. And then so Fleming was a part of this committee. No, Fleming sent it to the committee. Okay, gotcha. So then Dr. Fleming provided the report to the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, Hmm. uh, who released it to the Wall Street Journal. Okay, we're going to come back to the committee later. The report itself indicated that Dr. Atkins had a history of heart attack, congestive heart failure, and hypertension. Yeah. And also says that at the time of his death, Dr. Atkins weighed 258 pounds. And given that he was six feet tall, that would have placed him in the obese category, BMI category. Dr. Stuart Traeger, he's the chairman of the Atkins Physicians Council in New York. So he did much of the speaking on behalf of Dr. Atkins throughout this whole time and whole controversy. And I mean, it's worth noting that he is the chairman of the Atkins Physicians Council. Right. He stated that Dr. Atkins' heart problems were actually related to a condition called cardiomyopathy, which resulted from a virus. So, and this is a thing, viral infections can cause acute inflammation of the heart muscle. And this would mean that his heart problems, for the most part, were not from his diet. So not related to eating habits. Mm -hmm. Dr. Traeger said he had no record of having a heart attack. My understanding is that he had no reported true evidence of classical angina, and angina is uh, chest pain caused by clogged arteries. He did have a history of irregular heartbeats. And remember earlier I said that there was some limited evidence to suggest a link between low-carb diets and um, atrial fibrillation. Yes. So that's just kind of a a point, like put a little star next to it. Yeah. Um, Just an interesting, maybe coincidence, maybe not. So now in terms of his weight, both Dr. Stuart Traeger and Veronica Atkins, his wife, Mm -hmm. attributed Dr. Atkins' weight to being severely bloated with fluid while in the coma. This is, again, a common thing. So apparently, and this was on medical charts as well, he was admitted to the hospital at 195 pounds and gained 64 pounds in swelling and edema over the next nine days and was 258 at death. Oh my gosh. Yeah. 64 pounds? 64 pounds. So Veronica Atkins, his wife, was quoted by NBC News as saying, my husband was so bloated, he had very slender hands, and when he was in bed, in this bed, his hands looked like ham hocks, this big. He was bloated, he did look like a balloon. Mm. The family declined to perform an autopsy which only caused suspicion to grow that the family was hiding something. But the examiner's office did conduct an external examination based on available hospital information. And there were handwritten comments in the medical examin report that said Dr. Atkins had a history of MI, which means myocardial infarction, mm-hmm. as well as, oh, which is a heart attack, as well as CHF, so congestive heart failure, and HTN, so hypertension. And these were handwritten in like the side of a medical report. So not like formally in it. Okay. Okay. Dr. Stuart Traeger, remember the physician for the Atkins Atkins. committee? Yeah. He said that the medical history on examiner's reports is often written by less experienced doctors who might not know a patient's detailed history. So, okay. I don't know. Veronica Atkins was furious that her late husband's personal medical history was made public. 
She said, I have been assured by my husband's physicians that my husband's health problems late in life were completely unrelated to his diet or any diet. Okay, (laughs) new doctor enter the pictures. So now we have Dr. Patrick Fratelloni. He treated Dr. Atkins from 1999 until 2002. So this is about 10 months before Dr. Atkins passed away. Okay. And he also worked with the doctor at the Atkins Center. So again, just making note of these potential sources of bias. He says Atkins suffered from cardiomyopathy, which again has been said a couple of times now by different doctors, which is a chronic heart weakness. But this condition was caused by a virus, not his diet. And Dr. Fratelloni was again quoted in this NBC article by John Hockenberry. Quote, I was his attending cardiologist at that time, and I made the statement. When we did his angiogram, I mean, the doctor who performed it, said it's pristine for someone that eats his kind of diet. Pristine meaning these are very clean arteries. I didn't want people to think his diet caused his heart muscle. It was definitely a documented viral infection. And then he finishes off by saying, the man slipped on the ice and had a head injury, so he died. Don't blame his diet. So very clear messaging there. Yeah. Both Veronica Atkins and Dr. Traeger maintain the position that the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine is trying to sabotage Dr. Atkins' reputation to promote their own agenda. Okay, so I did some lateral research to evaluate the credibility of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. The Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine was founded by Dr. Neil Barnard, but contrary to its name, it's not actually a physician's committee. It's more of an animal rights group that promotes a plant-based diet, preventative Mm -hmm. medicine, and alternatives to animal research. And they have been in conflict with the American Medical Association a couple of times. That's such a sneaky, sneaky name. Yeah. I know. It, it's hmm. it's like one of those names that you'd be like, they're harmless. They're the committee for, come on, they're doctors for responsible medicine. But like, it is made up of doctors. Oh, no, 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 no. So oh. apparently <laughs> it has 150,000 members, but only about 12,000 are physicians. So that's less than 10%. Oh my gosh. Dr. Neil Barnard, the founder of Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, was quoted by the NBC as saying, the Atkins website says that his good health and his clean coronary arteries were apparently due to his diet. An extraordinary claim, and apparently one that was not true at all. This is not a joke. This is serious business. This is a major public health problem. So I I went on the Atkins website and I tried to find uh, any claims that were even close to this, that he had good health and clean coronary arteries, and I could not find them. So Okay. Maybe it's possible they removed them. It's possible they just did a press release, you know, at the time of all this, but I couldn't find those claims. It's also 18 years later, 17 years later. (laughs) It's a very long time. So in theory, yes, it would be a major public health issue if the Atkins diet was causing widespread heart disease, right? But there Mm -hmm. is no, there's plenty of evidence. There's no strong evidence to suggest that a low-carb diet is dangerous. And there are millions of people who have followed the Atkins diet. Mm -hmm. This is what Dr. Stuart Traeger had to say about the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine. Here's a group of people who compare eating cheese to heroin, feeding children meat to child abuse. They don't think anyone should eat animal products, and it's clear they'll go to any extreme, any extreme, including giving out records, breaking ethical violations, and trying to convince people. So I don't think we'll ever know what actually killed Dr. Robert Atkins. But as we know from studying 
nutrition and the social determinants of health, it's very challenging to pinpoint one specific cause of health issues, especially when it comes to non-communicable disease. Even if it was a heart issue that caused Dr. Atkins' death, it absolutely could have been due to a virus. It could have been due to genetic reasons. It could have been an arterial injury from when he was a child. There are Mm -hmm. so many other factors at play that it would be very challenging to attribute it solely to his diet. Right. Okay, let's bring it back to Veronica Atkins. She did demand an apology from Mayor Michael Bloomberg for his insensitive remarks, and she got one. That's good. So that was a small win for Veronica. And she was also quoted as saying, I would say, please read the studies. I will devote my life to prove that he was right. I'm going to prove it scientifically. I will not let anything, anybody denigrate my Bobby. Mm. End quote. Okay, so what's our take-home message here? Let's bring this story home. So the main message I wanted to say, especially as we go into the new year, is that you don't have to embark on a new diet just because it's a new year. And the way you eat doesn't need to have a name. It doesn't need to be a specific style of eating. You can just eat a normal, healthy, balanced diet that includes all the food groups and makes you feel good and helps you meet your health goals. And another take-home message that Becca covered so nicely at the start is that carbs can be and are your friends. Low-carb diets have not been shown to be more effective or more sustainable than other dietary patterns. And in my opinion, you know what's better than low-carb? What's that? Having some carbs. (laughs) Just having carbs. Finding a balance that works for you. Uh, So if you want to set some realistic goals for the New Year's, I have to say this. You can find a registered dietitian in your area. And that's it. Love it. That's the story. Oh, that was... Really great. You know what? It wasn't, I mean, it was definitely scandalous for sure, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't as scandalous as I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Because yeah, as you said, there's like a little bit of bias on all the different sides that are tackling this story. Yeah. And I also too, like when he is, when Atkins was promoting the low carb diet, really there is, we were talking about this before, like there really is some science proving that something like a ketogenic diet does technically work based on science. It might not necessarily be healthier for you, but having fewer carbs, higher fat and protein, it could potentially work in putting your body in that state of ketosis. Absolutely. Yeah. It's been shown Mm -hmm. to be effective for short-term weight loss. Absolutely. The longer term Side effects or longer-term sustainability is a little more murky, Mm -hmm. but at least from the research that I did, and I read quite a few studies, it's not dangerous. I think it it can be for certain disease states, Mm -hmm. dangerous for certain disease states, so I shouldn't say that, but for for a healthy individual, it's not typically dangerous. Right. Yeah. And even what I was mentioning earlier with um, like muscle atrophy and Mm -hmm. kidney issues, those haven't necessarily been proven as like a causal, there's no causal relationship between the keto diet and those things. It's more like more research needs to be done around these things because there potentially might be some type of link. But as of right now, I don't think that there, there is. Totally. And you know how you can Mm -hmm. make sure you do a new low carb diet safely? How's that? Go see a registered dietitian. Seriously, (laughs) though, like they can help you make sure you don't do it wrong. We make it more sustainable for you. For sure. 
For sure. And there's dietitians that practice in every which way. So Mm -hmm. you don't necessarily have to find somebody that's all about intuitive eating. There are dietitians that can help you healthily, safely attain your weight loss goals. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. All right. So that's it until the new year. Wow. We got a break now. Ah, I can't believe it. I know. I guess you'll be listening to this on January 4th. That's the date, right? Yeah. January 4th. (laughs) Happy New Year. (laughs) Happy New Year. Hope 2021 is awesome. Do you have a teaser question? I do. I do. do. Thanks for reminding me. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's very similar to one that we had a couple of weeks ago. Okay. But what is your go-to McDonald's order? (gasps) Oh, uh, okay. I'm so excited. It's, (laughs) It's nuggets. It's Nuggies. not a super excited, exciting answer, but like nuggets, sweet and sour sauce, fries, and probably a root beer. Nice. I like root beer a lot. What's root yours? So I used to, like when I was in high school and stuff, I used to always get the junior chickens. Yeah. I used to love junior chickens too. But I, whenever I go to McDonald's now, mm-hmm. it's only for their soft serve hot fudge sundae. Mm-hmm. It's, I have to say, it's probably the best ice cream. Better than Dairy Queen? I think so, yeah. Oh, wow. Bold. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to work for Dairy Queen. I know. So I'm sorry for offended you. Deeply, (laughs) deeply. (laughs) No, I'm super down for um, a McFlurry as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. McFlurries are bomb, but mostly nuggets. It's a good choice. Anyways, that's your, that's your teaser question. All right. We'll have a happy holidays and a happy new year. And I guess it's already the new year when this is airing. So I hope uh, you like 2021. Yeah. I hope the fourth day is going well. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) All right. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Dietetics After Dark. You can find all the references and materials used to put this podcast together in our show notes at thenutritionjunkie.com slash dietetics after dark. This is an independently produced podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would rate, review, and subscribe to our show. For more information, follow us on Instagram at dietetics after dark. If you have an idea for an episode or segment, email us at dietheticsafterdark at gmail.com. This podcast was recorded and edited by Earworm Radio. We highly recommend their services for all of your podcasting needs. You can learn more about Earworm Radio at earwormradio.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. 
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlingbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.